passion for God and compassion for our neighbor. Reaching our region and beyond with the life-changing message of Jesus Christ. This is Crosswinds Church. And now, here's Pastor Jordan Gowing. Well, good morning again, church. Uh, happy Easter. This morning, we, as, as you all know, we gather to celebrate the resurrection. We gather to celebrate Jesus' victory over sin and over death. We gather to celebrate the assurance of our own future resurrection as well. It is a, a good day uh, to, to celebrate uh, if we look to, look to Christ for our salvation, and that is why we gather here this morning. If you have a Bible, I invite you to open up to Romans, uh, Romans chapter 8. Uh, we're going to be in one verse this morning. We're going to be in Romans 8, 18. This is a, a verse that many of you are probably familiar with. It's a simple verse, and yet it is a powerful verse for us as well. It's probably one that you have, have heard of, and it's meant for us to take the promise of Easter, the promise of what Christ has done in, on the cross and in the empty tomb, and it's, it's meant to apply it to our lives today. So take that hope that is unwavering and apply it into the face of any and every difficulty that we may face in this life. It is this verse that gives us the, the understanding uh, in the face of a question that many of us may have heard. It's one asked by a little child on an Easter morning, Daddy, if Jesus defeated death and sin at Easter, then how come there is still so much pain in the world? And that's our focus this morning. That's what this verse speaks to this morning. That's what this text promises this morning, an answer to that question. There's only one thing that you take away from this morning. It's a celebration this morning. I hope it is this. The promise that was made to us at Easter will one day be fulfilled. And so do not lose hope. The promise that was made to us at Easter will one day be fulfilled, so do not lose hope. No matter how dark the sky, no matter how black the night, no matter how long or deep your suffering or your pain may seem, do not lose hope. Easter is the death blow to death. It is the victory that awaits each and every one of us who is a child of God. Now, this one verse, Romans 8, 18, is perhaps uh, more than any other verse, the one that takes the incredible good news of Easter Sunday and it applies it to our life. It reconciles it with the painful, frustrating, frustrating, sometimes infuriating suffering and hardship that we face in our lives today, that we see our, our loved ones face today. And so this morning, I, I just want to take this one verse and I want to do something that we normally don't do. I just want to go phrase by phrase through this verse phrase by phrase through this verse, and see how this verse gives us an unshakable promise that was purchased for us at Easter. If you have a Bible, I invite you to follow along in Romans chapter 8. Hear these words. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing to the glory that is to be revealed to us. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed 
to us. The first word in this verse is for. It is a calling at the very beginning to remember what Paul has told us at, uh, up to this point. And this word for, if you understand the context of Romans, specifically Romans chapter 8, this word for is a declaration that there is a future glory. There is a glory that awaits each and every son and daughter of God. Romans 8 is an extremely powerful chapter. It's a a chapter that is devoted to the bedrock of our assurance of salvation. Our salvation is found in Christ because of Christ. Romans 8 starts with some very, very beautiful words. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And it ends with some equally beautiful words. If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, he, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? And he continues after that to describe the graciousness of God. Romans 8 is a chapter that is a continuous crescendo, each moment, if possible, more beautiful, more magnificent, more glorious than the previous moment. And it reaches its peak In verses 16 and 17, written right before our verse this morning, hear these words. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. These two verses tell us that because of Easter, because Jesus was perfectly obedient to his Father, because he went to the cross in our place that he did not deserve, because he rose victorious, he won his inheritance. And the incredible news of Romans chapter 8, the incredible news of Easter is that this inheritance is for us as well, that we are welcomed into the family of God as co-heirs with Christ, who is now our older brother. So when Paul writes for, here at the beginning of, of verse 18, he has this in mind. He has this incredible truth in mind, that we are sons and daughters of God, and as such, we have a future glory awaiting us. A glorious inheritance awaits the children of God. But that's not all that Paul has in mind. If you are familiar with Romans 8, if you have your Bible open, you'll notice that I left out the last part of verse 17. Romans 16 and 17 tell us that if we are going to reach the same glory that Jesus did, then we are going to have to walk the same path that Jesus did as well. Verses 16 and 17. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. You see, Romans 8 looks at the gospel, and it looks at our lives, and it says, even as Jesus, our older brother, entered glory through suffering, we can expect that suffering awaits those who would enter that same glory. The reality of suffering, the, uh, the reality of hardship Today is something that we are all too familiar with. Relationships can be in turmoil to the point that those that we thought were friends now ostracize us and leaving us feeling all alone. A seeming victory in our struggle against sickness becomes a setback and overshadowed by a disease that comes back with a vengeance. Around us, each 
And every day we are given reminder after reminder of the fragility of life, of how broken this life is, of how desperate our world and each of us are for a Savior. And here in Romans chapter 8, we are told that these trials, that these sufferings, that these tribulations are the lot of those who would see glory. If you will see glory, suffering must come. Now, Paul has all suffering in view here. He's not just referring to suffering persecution for the sake of the gospel. Romans chapter 8, in the larger context, speaks of the suffering of all creation in this present age. Verses 20 through 22. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself would be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. The reality is that all of creation, whether we are Christian or not, whether we are human or not, all of creation faces hardship. All of creation faces suffering. It comes with a lot of living in a broken world. But Romans 8, 16 and 17 tell us that for the Christian for those who find themselves as heirs of God, for those who are co-heirs with Christ, God will see that their suffering will bring about a future glory. That your pain will bring about a future glory. Romans 5 tells us how this suffering ties into our future glory. Romans 5, verses 3 through 5 say, Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Paradoxically, The glory that awaits us is tied to the suffering that we experience, the hardship that we experience today as sons and daughters. We're going to explore this a little more later, but briefly know what these verses are telling us. They tell us that suffering will lead to endurance. It leads us to perseverance. You might be saying, well, how? How does it lead us to perseverance? Well, it reminds us that the earth is not our home. That there is more for us ahead. It reminds us that the victory of Easter, which we celebrate today, the glorious resurrection, the, the resurrection of Christ, his victory over sin and death, that glorious truth is not yet fully here. That there is more to come. This perseverance creates character in each of us and like an intentional exercise regimen targets fat and builds muscle. The perseverance that results from suffering, from hardship, breaks down any hopes that we might place in things that will fail us. Any desires that we have in things that will fail us and it reminds us that we have an unfathomable future glory ahead of each and every one of us. An unbelievable inheritance awaits each of us as sons and daughters of God. It reminds us that the suffering of this present age, whatever its form may be, whether it's an autoimmune disease, whether it's poverty, whether it's cancer, whether it's a mental illness, whether it's relational brokenness, and on and on and on, all of these things are necessary for us to attain 
glory. All of that is found in that first word, for. Paul continues, he says, for I consider. Now let's pause and consider what Paul is considering, if you can follow that. Paul is telling us that this future glory is founded on the past faithfulness of God. The word consider here is a, uh, it's a very left brain term. It's very analytical. It's very linear. It's very straightforward. Paul is going to make a comparison here. He's going to take everything into account. He's going to be very comprehensive in his study before he makes a decision. And the first thing that Paul takes into account when he is considering the state that he finds himself, that many of us find ourselves in with the glorious truth of Easter, with the reality of the hardship that we face on a day-to-day basis, Paul first looks at the past faithfulness of God. In one sense, that's what Romans is all about up to this point. The book starts by describing the terrible state that humanity finds itself in apart from Christ. You see, all of humanity, whether we are religious or irreligious, no matter if we are churched or unchurched, no matter how moral or immoral we may be on the outside, all of humanity finds itself in a hopeless state. And that's what the first two and a half chapters of Romans are all about. They hammer that home time and time again. It says, you are not righteous. Your spouse is not righteous. Your son is not righteous. Your daughter is not righteous. Your unbelieving neighbor is not righteous. No one can possibly hope to stand before God on that day. And then Romans 3 comes. Romans 3 declares the incredible, marvelously good news of the gospel. It says that God's righteousness has been revealed to us apart from the law in the person of Jesus Christ, where you failed, where I failed, where your pious grandmother failed. Jesus did not. Jesus has been found righteous. And by offering up his life on the cross in your place, in my place, in the place of anyone who would believe upon him, Jesus has made a way for us to be co-heirs with Christ. To be his little brothers and sisters and to share in the glorious inheritance that awaits him. You see, Jesus didn't stay dead, but rose victorious. And his resurrection, the first fruits of our own resurrection, the first fruits of the coming new creation. Romans chapter 4 continues this and says that this righteousness is available to everyone. It doesn't matter how religious or unreligious you are before you hear the gospel. The reality is it is available to each and every person through faith, through belief, through trust in Jesus' death and resurrection on your behalf. Romans 5 continues this and tells us that the, the enmity that existed between God and humanity, the rebellion that started millennia ago in the garden, has ended. Arms have been laid down. Love has won the hearts of wicked rebels like you and me. Romans 6 continues this good news and tells us that those who once had no hope can find an unending wellspring of hope in their union with Christ as they believe 
on Christ, as they believe in Christ, they will be found in union with him, and we will find a new life in that union, that we actually die in Jesus's death, that we actually raise to new life in his resurrection, that this life of faith that we now live gives us an unbelievable assurance. Romans 7 tells us that even if sin gets in the way, we continue to fail, continue to screw up, mess up in our, our desire to follow God. Romans 7 tells us that, that won't get in the way of God. Romans 8 tells us that suffering, that pain, that evil itself will not stand between God and his children. And when Paul says, for I consider... Paul is considering all of these things. He's weighing all of this. He looks at all of the the truths of what Christ has accomplished for us on the cross through his perfect obedience, through his resurrection, through our union with him. And he says that God has proven faithful to us in the past. And we can be confident that he will be faithful in the future. You see, Paul takes all of the evidence. He weighs all of the evidence before him, including the incredible future glory that awaits each and every one of us, the past mercy and faithfulness of God, and even the very real, very painful suffering of this present age. And he looks at it all. He lays it all out on the table. And he concludes, after looking at the weight of the suffering in this present age, it cannot be counted in comparison to the inestimable weight of glory before us. One pastor describes Paul's conclusion here. Did they stand compared as one to a thousand? No. Else they would have been worthy to be compared. Did they stand as one to 10,000 or one to a million or one to a million of millions? If so, they would have been worthy to be compared. But Paul says that there is no proportion whatsoever between the two of them. The sufferings that are before us are merely a single drop, and the glory before us is as boundless as the ocean. Now, when you hear that, you may think that that's a hard word. It's a word here in Romans 8, 18, that trivializes our current suffering, our current pain. If we don't read this verse correctly, the next words could say exactly that. Paul says, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time, and then he continues on, could be that those are just a declaration from God that when we face hardship, when we are in pain, when we suffer, that God is just telling us to buck up and to put a smile on your face, that there's no place in this life to be sad or to grieve or to lament the hardship of your life. Be happy. That's not what Romans 8.18 tells us. Romans 8.18, if we read it in the right way, reminds us that our future glory uh, uh, lies for us, awaits us on the other side of the sufferings that we experience today, the pain that we experience today. That's what this text is all about. Rather than telling us that the Bible trivializes our suffering, it doesn't make it insignificant, Just a few verses after this, the the passage tells us that our suffering and our pain and our hardship at this very time, of this present time, is very real. It actually does hurt. It actually does lead us to tears. It actually does leave us facing depression and feeling like we are at the end of our rope. That actually does leave a hole in our hearts that we don't think that we can fill or could be healed. God doesn't try to convince us otherwise. 
We read these verses earlier, but Paul tells us that all of creation has been subjected to corruption. It's been subjected to futility, starting in verse 20. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in the hope that creation itself would be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. The greatest mystery facing the disciples when they walked with Jesus, something that they could not understand until the resurrected Jesus came and explained it to them, is that they thought that when the Messiah came, all of their hardship, all of their suffering, all of their pain would come to an end. That it would disappear. That God would take care of all of it. They had no idea that it would still be a very real part of our lives. They thought that when Messiah came to establish his kingdom, he would do so in full. And yet Jesus explained that he came to give a glimpse of his kingdom, to establish his kingdom, to make a way for us to be a part of his kingdom. But our suffering would still be there. Scripture tells us that all of creation is still broken, that all of creation is still subjected to futility. All of it is still longing for redemption. It does not minimize, it does not trivialize the pain of today, but instead it validates it as one of the reasons why Christ had to come for us. You see, the Bible does not minimize our suffering in light of the cross, in light of the empty tomb, in light of the future glory before us. For our text continues, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing. When it speaks of this comparison between our present sufferings and the future glory that is to come, we see that the Bible doesn't trivialize or minimize our suffering, but it does give us the lens through which we can look at our present pain in light of the future glory. Now, if I'm being honest, uh, I sometimes find Paul, the Apostle Paul, who wrote these words, I find him a, a little bit hard to relate to. There are several times in the book of Acts, there are several times in his letters that he comes across as, uh, forgive me, an insufferable op optimist. Everything that Paul says comes across or could come across uh, at first glance is something that's entirely unrelatable to us as our hearts break, as we watch our children hurt and in pain. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, it's a very similar passage to the one that we're looking at here in Romans chapter 8, helps us actually squelch such a misreading. There, Paul says this, but we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. Notice these things. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. A few verses after this, Paul describes his own physical suffering when he describes his outer self as wasting away. Paul tells us that in this life, the body will waste away. Decay will come. Rust comes and destroys and ruins. Moths eat and destroy. The body wastes away. Cancer consumes the body. Alzheimer's robs the man of his mind. The body degenerates and wastes away. And yet through it all, Paul does not, Paul does not rest his optimism 
or his hope on his optimism, not on his own ability to overcome, not in a denial that these things are very real and very tough for us to deal with, but instead in the mercy of God. John 11 tells us how Jesus responds when he's looking death in the face. Jesus, the one who has power over death, the ability to raise the dead back to life. John 11 tells us of a time when his dear friend Lazarus died. Lazarus was a good friend of Jesus. Jesus was off doing ministry in Galilee, and he received news that his friend Lazarus, who lived about 90 miles away near Jerusalem, was gravely ill. You would think that Jesus would set out the moment he heard this news or Jesus has healed people from a great distance in the past, you would think that Jesus would just say the words and Lazarus would recover. Jesus did neither. Instead, he waited. For two days, he waited. He let his friend walk through pain. He let his friend's body deteriorate. He let it be consumed by sickness. Perhaps it was a fever that burned his body until it resulted in death. It was only after those two days, after waiting for two days, he sets out to visit Lazarus, his friend. And when he draws near to the tomb where Lazarus is buried, he, he encounters Lazarus's sister, Mary. And John describes the conversation between the two of them. Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. And Jesus wept. So the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could he, not he who opened the eyes of the blind also have kept this man from dying? Here is Mary, a friend of Jesus's. He's seen Jesus heal complete strangers. And her brother, a friend of Jesus, has died. Here in these, verse, in these words, uh, she laments that Jesus is in the wrong place at the wrong time. Says, oh Lord, if you were here, Lazarus would not have died. And, and it's not right or appropriate for us to look at her words as an accusation. They're not said in anger. They're just stating a fact according to her knowledge. That if Jesus was there, Lazarus would not have died. Notice what the text tells us about Jesus and how he responds in this scene. When Jesus sees Mary and he sees others grieving, sees others mourning, the text tells us that he was deeply moved and he was greatly troubled. That's not the best translation. A better way of translating this is that it says that Jesus saw the death of his friend Lazarus. Jesus saw the grief that it had caused Mary and it was causing others. And the text literally says he was angry. He was outraged. And then when he sees the tomb, he begins to weep. Now, we might wonder, well, why, why are there such confusing emotions from Jesus here? Why is there this anger? Why is there this outrage? Why is there this weeping? It's, it's not because Jesus is powerless. After all, Jesus just raises Lazarus from the dead just a few verses later. So why does Jesus experience all these emotions? Well, 
remember who Jesus is. Jesus is the word of God. Jesus is the one by whom all things were created. Jesus is the one who has always been, who always will be. Colossians tells us that he has created all things, and in him all things hold together. And here Jesus is staring death in the face. He looks at the grief and the loss that it has caused his friends, and he remembers how he and his Father and the Holy Spirit shaped creation in the very beginning, and he knows in a deeper and more richer way than any of us could ever possibly know that this is not the way that things were meant to be. The pain that he sees on the face of his friends is not the way that he meant things to be. Jesus looks at the death and the suffering in the face and he weeps and he is grieved, but he's also very angry about it. Jesus is like a father who sees his little son bullied and he is outraged. He's not mad at you. He's not mad at me. He's just mad at sin itself. His creation has been marred by sin, by suffering and death, and it is that grief and that anger that lead him to the cross to put an end to death, put to, to, to put an end to grief and to blot out sin that causes all this pain. You see, rather than making light of our suffering, God understands that our suffering, he understands it in a way that you and I cannot hope to fully comprehend. Jesus looks at your hardship. Jesus looks at your suffering. He looks at your turmoil, your pain, and more than just seeing broken relationships that really actually hurt you, more than just seeing a body that is wasting away, he sees clearly that that is not what he intended for you. That is not what he intended for his creation. He sees the ugliness that is caused by sin on his good creation, and he is moved to grief. He is moved to compassionate tears, yes, but even more than that, he is moved to anger, not directed at you, but at the ugliest, ugliness of sin that has caused even the possibility of your pain. You see, far from making your grief trivial, the Bible gives us the category to actually grieve, to actually lament, to actually feel pain. And it doesn't just stop there. Our text in Romans reminds us that while our pain is very real, the final word has not yet been written. Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, yes, but even more importantly than that, Jesus went to death himself so that you and I would not have to stay dead See, the Christian view of suffering is not something that is nihilistic. It doesn't look at hardship, as at pain, as something that's just meaningless. Romans 8, 28, a verse that many of us are familiar with, says this, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. You may not be able to fathom it now, but God is able to take your suffering and will take your suffering without trivializing it and bring it to work for good. At the end of the Lord of the Rings trilogy, Samwise Gamgee, he, he's startled with the news that his dear friend Gandalf, that he thought was dead, was actually alive and well. In his surprise, he says, Gandalf, I thought you were dead, but then I thought I was dead myself. Is everything sad going to come untrue? Is everything sad going to come untrue? Romans 8 tells us that while everything sad may not Come fully untrue. It will be redeemed and it will be made glorious for those who are children of God. 
One pastor reminds us that when we are at the hospital, it makes all the, def- all the difference where we are located when we hear the screams of pain. The scream of pain that comes from the oncology unit is far different from the scream of pain that is found in the maternity wing. And here, Romans 8 is telling us that all of our screams of pain, if we are sons and daughters of God, if we are the children of God, all of those screams come from the maternity wing, even those that come from the oncology unit. Because our pain is birth pains. For the Christian, all pain and suffering that we face is not merely the end, but it is instead birth pains for an unsurpassable joy that awaits us in the future. You see, for the children of God, there is no such thing as pains of death. Even pains of death are but birth pains. And that is why Paul says that the sufferings of this present age are not worth comparing to the glory before us. And that's what he says in the next section. He, he at last gets the glory. We, he at last assures us of the victory that is before us because of Easter, that glory awaits each and every child of God. And indeed, that's what our present longings in the midst of our suffering point us to, a future glory. Romans describe what this future glory is. It tells us that this future glory awaits the children of God as at least three things. First, Romans 4 tells us that this glorious inheritance before us is the earth itself. Romans 4, 13. For the promise to Abraham and his offsprings that he would be an heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. God has promised Abraham and his offspring, which includes the children of God, that they would inherit the world. Scripture reminds us that God himself is the owner of all creation because he created it. Psalm 24, verse 1, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. You see, if the whole earth is God's, then those who will receive it are his children. The glory that awaits you is the entire world, a new world a redeemed world, a world that is perfected and is there for you to enjoy. God has made creation for you to enjoy for forevermore. Second, Romans chapter 5 tells us another piece of our inheritance, and that is God himself. Romans 5 verse 2, the second half of verse 2. We rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. We rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. We look forward to this glory of God that is before us. We rejoice that not only that we will be given the entire world for our enjoyment and for our satisfaction, but that we will also be given God himself for our enjoyment, for our satisfaction. We will see his glory and we will be satisfied. God will dwell among us and we will be satisfied with his presence. And finally, Romans 8 tells us that our unglorious inheritance includes glorified bodies, verse 23. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, we who have the first fruits of the Spirit, grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. The brokenness of creation, the brokenness of our bodies in particular, shows us that we are longing for something more, a future hope. An example from this past week. I I finished this sermon on Friday, and on Friday night, if you live here in Spencer, uh, there was a terrible thunderstorm. Just ridiculously loud, especially for someone who has two kids under two. 
I woke up around 3.30 uh, because of thunder, and my sermon, as it usually is, was still fresh on my mind, and I woke up with the thunder, uh, was, was shocked at how loud it was, uh, and then tried to get back to sleep, but I couldn't because I had a throbbing pain in my knee. Now, I'm 29, and I don't know a lot about physiology, but I, I know that I'm not supposed to be someone who has a knee that hurts because of the weather. And so as I was lying there in bed, I began to actually groan. And my wife, Crystal, she says, what's wrong? And I said, I'm just groaning with the rest of creation for my redempted body. I'm longing, I'm groaning with the rest of creation for the revelation of the sons of God. At least that's what I thought I said. Uh, it's, it was 3.30 in the morning and no one actually says things that coherent in the middle of the night. When our bodies ache, when our bodies are actually wasting away, we realize that our bodies have been subjected to futility and we desire, we long for something more. We long for bodies that are no longer frail, that are no longer laced with cancer, that are no longer going to stop functioning the way they are supposed to, but instead for bodies that will be majestic, that will be beyond the reach of decay. And because of the incredible good news of Easter, our longings for those types of bodies. Our longings for a future glory will one day come. And the final phrase of this verse points us again to the future. It says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing to the glory that is to be revealed to us, to be revealed to us. Those words remind us that we can have a confident hope in the future glory for each and every one of us that has not yet fully here. Romans 8 reminds us that our lives testify that we can be purchased, the glory purchased for us at Easter is not yet fully here, but we have a confident hope that it will one day come. That the sun, as sure as the sun rises in the east each and every day, that's the confidence that we can have that this glory will come. That the promise that God made to us at Easter will one day be fulfilled. So how do we live in the interim? How do we live when we see our bodies waste away, when we are hurt? Well, Romans 8 gives us three ways that we can live in confident hope of our future glory. First, we groan. The incredible thing about Romans and the Bible is that God gives us permission to groan even as we await a future glory. Romans 8, verse 23, and not only the creation, but we ourselves, we have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. God gives us permission to grieve. God gives us permission to mourn, to lament over our suffering and the brokenness of this world. God gives us permission to pray that the cup of suffering would pass from us. The beauty of the future glory that awaits us is that we are given permission to be unsatisfied with our present suffering. God has given you permission to groan. Second, as we await a future glory, we also long Again, verse 23, not only the creation, but we ourselves, those who have the first fruits of the Spirit, grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. 
We eagerly await our adoption as sons and daughters of God, the receipt of our inheritance, the redemption of our bodies. Perseverance in our suffering does not mean that we cannot look to the future, that we cannot long for the future, that we cannot long for God's kingdom to come in its fullness for us to receive the resurrection bodies that God has promised us. And third, and probably the most important, As we await our future glory, we live with a hope as our foundation. Verse 25, but if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. This life is a life of patience and hope We have patience in the midst of the hardships and we have hope for a future glory. This morning, remember this truth. The promise made at Easter will one day be fulfilled. So do not lose hope. As we await our future glory, these lives will be difficult. They will be troublesome. Our bodies will still face Corruption, they will still face decay, they will still face futility. Our relationships will still be marred by difficulty, and so we groan. We cry out to God for mercy. We long, we pray that God and His kingdom would come again quickly and He would bring His Easter promise in full. And yet we do it all with a hope. We endure the hardship, we endure the hardest times with the unshakable foundation that God will remember his promises. And that includes the promise of Easter. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for Easter. We thank you for the victory that was won. And with all of creation, we long for a future glory. We long for the time where we will fully receive the inheritance that you have promised us as co-heirs with Christ. And so we long for that and we say, come quickly, Lord Jesus. And even as we do so, we groan We ask that the cup of suffering that we face, whether it may be small or large, we do ask that it would pass from us. And yet through it all, we do so with a hope, with a confidence that this is not the end. That Easter will come for each and every one of us as well. Thank you, God. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This has been a presentation of Crosswinds Church. More of Pastor Jordan's sermons can be found online at crosswinds.tv. Thanks for being with us, and may God continue to enrich your life.